Chapter Number Twelve of the Turmoil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For information or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. Recording by Jonathan Burchard, May two thousand nine. The Turmoil, Volume One of the Growth Trilogy, by Booth Tarkington, Chapter Twelve. Standing in the black group under gaunt trees at the cemetery, three days later, Bibbs unwillingly let an old, old thought become definite in his mind. The sickly brother had buried the strong brother, and Bibbs wondered how many million times that had happened since men first made a word to name the sons of one mother. Almost literally he had buried his strong brother, for Sheridan had gone to pieces when he saw his dead son. He had nothing to help him meet the shock, neither definite religion nor philosophy, definite or indefinite. He could only beat his forehead and beg, over and over, to be killed with an axe, while his wife was helpless except to entreat him not to take on, herself adding a continuous lamentation. Edith, weeping, made truce with Sybil, and saw to it that the mourning garments were beyond criticism. Roscoe was dazed, and he shirked, justifying himself curiously by saying he had never had any experience in such matters. So it was Bibbs, the shy outsider, who became, during this dreadful time, the master of the house, for as strange a thing as that sometimes may be the result of a death. He met the relatives from out of town at the station. He set the time for the funeral and the time for the meals. He selected the flowers, and he selected Jim's coffin. He did all the grim things and all the other things. Jim had belonged to an order of knights, who lengthened the rites with a picturesque ceremony of their own, and at first Bibbs wished to avoid this, but upon reflection he offered no objection. He divined that the knights and their service would be not precisely a consolation, but a satisfaction to his father. So the knights led the procession, with their band playing a dirge part of the long way to the cemetery, and then turned back, after forming in two lines, plumed hats sympathetically in hand, to let the hearse and the carriages pass between. "'Mighty fine-looking men,' said Sheridan, brokenly. "'They all, all liked him. "'He was—' his breath caught in a sob and choked him. "'He was a grand supreme herald. "'Bibbs had divined a right. "'Dust to dust,' said the minister, under the gaunt trees, "'and at that Sheridan shook convulsively from head to foot. "'All of the black group shivered except Bibbs when it came to dust to dust.' Bibbs stood passive, for he was the only one of them who had known that thought as a familiar neighbor. He had been close upon dust himself for a long, long time, and even now he could prophesy no protracted separation between himself and dust. The machine shop had brought him very close, and if he had to go back, it would probably bring him closer still. So close, as Dr. Gurney predicted, that no one would be able to tell the difference between dust and himself. And Sheridan, if Bibbs read him truly, would be all the more determined to make a man of him, now that there was a man less in the family. To Bibbs' knowledge, no one and nothing had ever prevented his father from carrying through his plans, once he had determined upon them, and Sheridan was incapable of believing that any plan of his would not work out according to his calculations. His nature unfitted him to accept failure. He had the gift of terrible persistence, and with unflecked confidence that his way was the only way he would hold to that way of making a man of Bibbs, who understood very well, in his passive and impersonal fashion, that it was a way which might make, not a man, but dust of him. 
but he had no shudder for the thought. He had no shudder for that thought or for any other thought. The truth about Bibbs was in the poem which Edith had adopted. He had so thoroughly formed the oversensitive habit of hiding his feelings that no doubt he had forgotten, by this time, where he had put some of them, especially those which concerned himself. But he had not hidden his feelings about his father where they could not be found. He was strange to his father, but his father was not strange to him. He knew that Sheridan's plans were conceived in the stubborn belief that they would bring about a good thing for Bibbs himself, and whatever the result was to be, the son had no bitterness. Far otherwise, for as he looked at the big, woeful figure, shaking and tortured, an almost unbearable pity laid hands upon Bibbs's throat. Roscoe stood blinking, his lip quivering. Edith wept audibly. Mrs. Sheridan leaned in half-collapsed against her husband, but Bibbs knew that his father was the one who cared. It was over. Men in overalls stepped forward with their shovels, and Bibbs nodded quickly to Roscoe, making a slight gesture toward the line of waiting carriages. Roscoe understood. Bibbs would stay and see the grave filled. The rest were to go. The groups began to move away over the turf, wheels creaked on the graveled drive, and one by one the carriages filled and departed, the horses setting off at a walk. Bibbs gazed steadfastly at the workmen. He knew that his father kept looking back as he went toward the carriage, and that was a thing he did not want to see. But after a little while there were no sounds of wheels or hoofs on the gravel, and Bibbs, glancing up, saw that everyone had gone. A coupé had been left for him, the driver dozing patiently. The workman placed the flowers and wreaths upon the mound and about it, and Bibbs altered the position of one or two of these, then stood looking thoughtfully at the grotesque brilliancy of that festal-seeming hillock beneath the darkening November sky. "'It's too bad,' he half-whispered, his lips forming the words. And his meaning was that it was too bad that the strong brother had been the one to go, for this was his last thought before he walked to the coupé and saw Mary Vertree standing all alone on the other side of the drive. She had just emerged from a grove of leafless trees that grew on a slope where the tombs were many, and behind her rose a multitude of the barbaric and classic shapes we so strangely strew about our graveyards, urn-crowned columns and stone-draped obelisks, shop-carved angels and shop-carved children poising on pillars and shafts, all lifting in unthoughtful pathos their blind stoniness toward the sky. Against such a background, Bibbs was not incongruous with his figure in black so long and slender and his face so long and thin and white nor was the undertaker's coupe out of keeping with the shabby driver dozing on the box and the shaggy horses standing patiently in attitudes without hope and without regret but for mary vertrees here was a grotesque setting she was a vivid living creature of a beautiful world and a graveyard is not the place for people to look charming she also looked startled and confused, but not more startled and confused than Bibbs. In Edith's poem, he had declared his intention of hiding his heart among the stars, and in his boyhood one day he had successfully hidden his body in the coal-pile. He had been no comrade of other boys or of girls, and his acquaintances of a recent period were only a few fellow invalids and the nurses at the Hood Sanitarium. All his life Bibbs had kept himself to himself. He was but a shy onlooker in the world. Nevertheless, the startled gaze he bent upon the unexpected lady before him had causes other than his shyness and her unexpectedness. For Mary Vertrees had been a shining figure in the little world of late given to the view of this humble and elusive outsider, 
and spectators sometimes find their hearts beating faster than those of the actors in the spectacle. Thus with Bibbs now. He started and stared. He lifted his hat with incredible awkwardness, his fingers fumbling at his forehead before they found the brim. "'Mr. Sheridan,' said Mary, "'I'm afraid you'll have to take me home with you. I—' She stopped, not lacking a momentary awkwardness of her own. "'Why, why, yes,' Bibbs stammered. "'I'll be—I'll be—won't you get in?' In that manner, and in that place, they exchanged their first words. Then Mary, without more ado, got, got into the coupé, and Bibbs followed, closing the door. "'You're very kind,' she said, somewhat breathlessly. "'I should have had to walk, and it's beginning to get dark. "'It's three miles, I think.' "'Yes,' said Bibbs. "'It—it it is beginning to get dark. "'I—I I, I noticed that.' "'I ought to tell you—' "'I—' Mary began confusedly. "'She bit her lip, sat silent a moment, "'then spoke with composure. "'It must seem odd. "'My—' "'No, no,' Bibbs protested earnestly. "'Not in the—' in the in the least it does though said mary i had not intended to come to the cemetery mr sheridan but one of the men in charge at the house came and whispered to me that the family wished me to i think your sister sent him so i came but when we reached here i oh i felt that perhaps i bibbs nodded gravely yes yes he murmured i got out on the opposite side of the carriage she continued i meant i mean opposite from from where all of you were, and I wandered off over in the other direction, and I didn't realize how little time it takes. From where I was, I couldn't see the carriages leaving, at least I didn't notice them, but when I got back just now, you were the only one here. I didn't know the other people in the carriage I came in, and of course they didn't think to wait for me. That's why— Yes, said Bibbs. I— And that seemed all he had to say just then. Mary looked out through the dusty window. "'I think we'd better be going home, if you please,' she said. "'Yes,' Bibbs agreed, not moving. "'It will be dark before we get there.' She gave him a quick little glance. "'I think you must be very tired, Mr. Sheridan, "'and I know you have reason to be,' she said gently. "'If you'll let me, I'll—' "'And without explaining her purpose, "'she opened the door on her side of the coupé and leaned out. "'Bibbs started in blank perplexity, "'not knowing what she meant to do.' Driver, she called in her clear voice loudly. Driver, we'd like to start, please. Driver, stop at the house just north of Mr. Sheridan's, please. The wheels began to move, and she leaned back beside Bibbs once more. I noticed that he was asleep when we got in, she said. I suppose they have a great deal of night work. Bibbs drew a long breath and waited till he could command his voice. I've never been able to apologize quickly, he said with his accustomed slowness. "'because if I try to, I stammer. "'My brother Roscoe whipped me once, when we were boys, "'for stepping on his slate pencil. "'It took me so long to tell him it was an accident, "'he finished before I did.' "'Mary Vertrees had never heard anything quite like the drawling, gentle voice "'or the odd implication that his not noticing the motionless state of their vehicle was an accident. "'She had formed a casual impression of him, not without sympathy,' But at once she discovered that he was unlike any of her cursory and vague imaginings of him. And suddenly she saw a picture he had not intended to paint for sympathy. A sturdy boy hammering a smaller, sickly boy, and the sickly boy unresentful. Not that picture alone. Others flashed before her. Instantaneously she had a glimpse of Bibbs's life 
and into his life. She had a queer feeling, new to her experience, of knowing him instantly. It startled her a little, and then, with some surprise, she realized that she was glad he had sat so long after getting into the coupé, before he noticed that it had not started. What she did not realize, however, was that she had made no response to his apology, and they passed out of the cemetery gates, neither having spoken again. Bibbs was so content with the silence he did not know that it was silence. The dusk, gathering in their small enclosure, was filled with a rich presence for him, and presently it was so dark that neither of the two could see the other, nor did even their garments touch, but neither had any sense of being alone. The wheels creaked steadily, rumbling presently on paved streets. There were the sounds, as from a distance, of the plod-plod of the horses, and sometimes the driver became audible, coughing asthmatically, or saying, "'You, Joe!' with a spiritless flap of the whip upon an unresponsive back. Oblongs of light from the lamps at street corners came swimming into the interior of the coupé, and thinning rapidly to lances, passed utterly, leaving greater darkness." and yet neither of these two last attendants at Jim Sheridan's funeral broke the silence. It was Mary who perceived the strangeness of it, too late. Abruptly she realized that for an indefinite interval she had been thinking of her companion and not talking to him. "'Mr. Sheridan,' she began, not knowing what she was going to say, but impelled to say anything, as she realized the queerness of this drive. "'Mr. Sheridan, I—' The coupé stopped. "'You, Joe!' said the driver reproachfully and climbed down and opened the door. "'What's the trouble?' Bibbs inquired. "'Lady said stop at the first house north of Mr. Sheridan, sir.' Mary was incredulous. She felt that it couldn't be true, and that it mustn't be true, that they had driven all the way without speaking. "'What?' Bibbs demanded. "'We're there, sir,' said the driver sympathetically. "'Next house north of Mr. Sheridan's.' Bibbs descended to the curb. "'Why, yes,' he said. "'Yes, you seem to be right.' And while he stood staring at the dimly illuminated front windows of Mr. Vertree's house, Mary got out unassisted. "'Let me help you,' said Bibbs, stepping toward her mechanically, and she was several feet from the coupé when he spoke. "'Oh, no,' she murmured. "'I think I can.' She meant that she could get out of the coupé without help, but perceiving that she had already accomplished this feat, she decided not to complete the sentence." "'You Joe!' cried the driver angrily, climbing to his box, and he rumbled away at his team's best pace, a snail's. "'Thank you for bringing me home, Mr. Sheridan,' said Mary stiffly. She did not offer her hand. "'Good night.' "'Good night,' Bibbs said in response, and, turning with her, walked beside her to the door. Mary made that a short walk. She almost ran. Realization of the queerness of their drive was growing upon her, beginning to shock her. She stepped aside from the light that fell through the glass panels of the door, and withheld her hand as it touched the old-fashioned bell handle. "'I'm quite safe, thank you,' she said with a little emphasis. "'Good night.' "'Good night,' said Bibbs, and went obediently. When he reached the street he looked back, but she had vanished within the house. Moving slowly away, he caromed against two people who were turning out from the pavement to cross the street. They were Roscoe and his wife. "'Where are your eyes, Bibbs?' demanded Roscoe. "'Sleepwalking, as usual?' But Sybil took the wanderer by the arm. "'Come over to our house for a while, Bibbs,' she urged. "'I want to—' "'No, I'd better—' "'Yes, I want you to. "'Your father's gone to bed, and they're all quiet over there, all worn out. "'Just come for a minute.' 
He yielded, and when they were in the house, she repeated herself with real feeling. All worn out. Well, if anybody is, you are, Bibbs, and I don't wonder. You've done every bit of the work of it. You mustn't get down sick again. I'm going to make you take a little brandy. He let her have her own way, following her into the dining room, and was grateful when she brought him a tiny glass filled from one of the decanters on the sideboard. Roscoe gloomily poured for himself a much heavier libation in a larger glass, and the two men sat while Sybil leaned against the sideboard, reviewing the episodes of the day and recalling the names of the donors of flowers and wreaths. She pressed Bibbs to remain longer when he rose to go, and then, as he persisted, she went with him to the front door. He opened it, and she said, "'Bibbs, you were coming out of the Vertrees's house when we met you. How did you happen to be there?' "'I had only been to the door,' he said. "'Good night, Sybil.' "'Wait,' she insisted. "'We saw you coming out.' "'I wasn't,' he explained, moving to depart. i just brought Miss Vertrees home.' "'What?' she cried. "'Yes,' he said, and stepped out upon the porch. "'That was it. "'Good night, Sybil.' "'Wait,' she said, following him across the threshold. "'How did that happen? "'I thought you were going to wait while those men filled the—' the. "'She paused, but moved nearer him insistently. "'I did wait. "'Miss Vertrees was there,' he said reluctantly. "'She had walked away for a while "'and didn't notice that the carriages were leaving. "'When she came back, the coupé waiting for me "'was the only one left.' Sybil regarded him with dilating eyes. She spoke with a slow breathlessness. And she drove home from Jim's funeral. With you. Without warning, she burst into laughter, clapped her hand ineffectually over her mouth, and ran uproariously into the house, hurling the door shut behind her. End of chapter 12